Welcome to The Glow Show from Grow Lab Organics, hosted by Charlie Lyons. Yes, 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 people. Welcome to the show. God, we're already episode 10 of this current season. I think this one's going to be a cracker. Time is flying by. The shows are rocking and rolling. So get yourself ready for another journey into the power of cannabis. Shifting our focus back over to the US this week. We've obviously spent a few shows getting deep and dirty with the good and the great of the UK cannabis sector. Uh, But this week, we're heading back over to California, to Los Angeles, and we are thinking about form factors and specifically beverages. I mean, there are so many reports out there showing the huge astronomical growth of uh, the beverage component of the cannabis market. Um, You know, you can do your own digging and find the the absolute truth there. There's uh, a lot to, to look at. But it's a, it's a huge growth area for the plant. Um, and for regular listeners of the show, you will be familiar with Luke Anderson and his company, Can, who are leading the charge in the beverage sector of cannabis. It's a microdose beverage. Um, it's been pretty disruptive in North America. Uh, if we think about it specifically in California, where it originated, that's Can's oldest market. It already has about 25% of all the THC beverage sales. Um, they did an initial launch with MedMen, and it's attracted some pretty major celeb investors, including Gwyneth Paltrow, Baron Davis, Rebel Wilson, Ruby Rose, Kate Hudson, and there's others attached to it as well. I think Rosario Dawson's on the board. So they're, they're going places, and I have been looking forward to this conversation for a while. I'm delighted that Luke has agreed to spend some time with us today, and we're delighted to have him on the show. Luke, welcome to The Glow Show. Um, I just wanted to say that over half of my guests from this first season have either name-checked you personally or can uh, as brands to watch, trailblazers in the cannabis space, and all the rest of it. So it's a pleasure to have you on. In traditional Glow Show fashion, it would be great if you could just give us a very quick uh, introduction with your background of how you kind of came to can and maybe your proudest moment in cannabis so far. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And I can't believe that we've been clocked like that by so many people. It feels like we're in this niche corner of the industry and, and everyone's saying beverage doesn't matter. And it's only this percent of the market. And, and so um, anytime people see us and, and appreciate what we're doing. It, it, it's validating. It helps us keep going. Yeah. My name is Luke Anderson. I am one of the co-founders of Can, And I started off by being, uh, my, my first cannabis experience was eating a pot brownie in college that sent me onto my back for like eight hours. And I swore never again. You know, it's, it's actually easy to avoid cannabis, especially if you find comfort in a community of people who validate that traumatic experience of being too high and uncomfortable in a social situation is a problem and that you're not crazy for for not being able to handle high doses of THC. My uh, 20s were riddled with a problematic alcohol drinking habit. And I met my co-founder, Jake, in uh, our mid-20s working at Bain & Company, a management consulting firm. We both were closeted queer people in business who were drinking to excess to cope with our identity crises. And after we came out, 
you know, it didn't really stop. The booze was a, a way for us to avoid uh, what we had gone through or perceptions of what, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to be an out and proud queer person and be rejected by certain parts of your life. And alcohol is a numbing agent. It's a brain cell killer and the queer community tends to abuse it and other hard drugs when they don't feel like they belong. So we had two very different ends of the spectrum when it comes to cannabis experience. Jake grew up in Colorado. He witnessed legalization from his front yard. And he had a thesis that in order to solve a serious unwanted alcohol consumption issue, you could take microdoses of THC, put them in a beverage. And just like you see with caffeine, you know, coffee and tea, there's a microdose of, alcohol, of caffeine and in beer and wine, there's a microdose of alcohol. Why can't we envision a microdose of cannabis in a beverage and in the future, microdoses of psychedelics in beverages? We put our heads together, um, said, hey, if we can raise a million dollars, if we can get people to buy into the vision, then we'll quit our jobs and, and we'll just move to LA and get started. And I was working in a consumer packaged goods unit at Bain in London that specialized in taking big multinational consumer goods companies and, and take their 18-month, $5 million budget product launch cycles and then shrink those to three months by focusing on one geography, one retailer, one SKU, and then prove the concept on a tiny budget in a short timeline. And so Jake and I applied that toolkit, his concept of a microdose THC beverage, and said, let's try to make something that would get you to buy it if you were in a dispensary, Jake, and me, Luke, someone who's never been to a dispensary to show up for the first time. That's where we really started having fun. We said, okay, these drinks need to look like drinks that are in Whole Foods. They need to have ingredient profiles that are popular today and, and bleeding edge of premium natural grocery or premium cocktail mixers. And then we just set out to build and test and build and retest and in Los Angeles with MedMen as a retailer that was a, a real attractive spot for people to make their first ever purchase, given that it looks like a friendly Apple store-like environment. We just, you know, closed an account, put the product on four store shelves, and then watched it sell itself. And when we saw it sell itself there, we said, oh my God, we really have something. Let's let's raise more money. Let's build bigger. Let's make more products with differentiated doses. Let's let's do form factor variation and and let's make this the first mainstream accepted cannabis brand uh, in in the industry's history. There have been brands with recognition, but there have not been brands that have mainstream acceptance. And by mainstream, I mean people who don't understand stoner culture. People who are afraid of getting high, people who don't want to smoke, people who are going to the liquor store or the grocery store. Like, what, what are they going to know? What are they going to find resonant? And, and two and a half years later, 10 million cans later, actually, it's more than three years later at this point, time flies. Um, we're the number one THC beverage by volume in the world, and, and we're not slowing down. That's amazing, man. Super impressive. I had um, Adam Beerman was on the show actually a couple of a couple of episodes back on the on the MedMen journey. Um, and was that intentional from you guys to pick a dispensary that you know had those 
more premium retail destinations. He spoke a lot about, you know, being on Abbot Kinney and on Fifth Avenue and stuff like that. And it really, once you're next to the Foot Locker or Gap or some of these brands and stores, which people are so familiar with, the stigma really falls away. Was that intentional or did you, uh, were they ones that just believed in the product? It was intentional. I think we had a very similar thesis to Adam in that the places with premium foot traffic and and tourist destinations, uh, those would be places where cannabis brands could be built quickly and effectively if the experience was good. And so Abbott Kinney Medmen continues to be one of our top stores. And uh, I think when we open up the tri-state area, you'll see us in Williamsburg, you'll see us in Manhattan, you'll you'll see us all over. And um, we found that people who have a little bit extra disposable income and aren't calculating dollar per milligram, this is their product. Um, mm. It's it's something I wish we could make less expensively, but when you have to set up a supply chain independently in each state that you operate in, it's very very difficult to get this down to the cost of a white cloth. We're we're yeah. kind of floating around in the cost of a premium hard kombucha right now, but over time you should see it go down as we're able to get more volume up. Yeah, of course. Let's um, pull sort of thousand feet up a bit and talk about alcohol and cannabis and the sort of perceptions of the two over the last number of years. You could even go back a decade if you want. You're obviously sitting on some probably pretty good data and insights from the behaviors around the way people are viewing alcohol, consumption habits, and cannabis. Can you just give the audience a bit of a view on how you see those two worlds at the moment? Yeah, our pitch deck was um, grounded in data around those two topics and the intersection of them. The the most important data point that we found in researching the product and the need state was 8 out of 10. Well, it's, it's actually 21 out of 25 adult drinkers say they want to drink less booze. And and that's that's an 80% plus clip. It's It's nearly everybody. So... If this is such a universal problem, that means that not that many things out there are solving. You can always go sober. You can drink LaCroix for a month. You can do a number of things. But you know, moderating alcohol consumption without committing to sobriety is very challenging. So on the cannabis side, I think roughly 60% of Americans are interested in purchasing cannabis, but only 10 to 15% have purchased in the last year from a legal dispensary. That means 45 to 50% are curious, don't know where to start. Either it's not accessible to them or they just don't really know how to take the steps. And so if you take those two figures, the overlap between people who want to drink less alcohol and people who are curious about cannabis but don't know where to start yet, it's probably about half of the country. And that's the addressable market. It's cross-generational. It's gender neutral. It's about problem solving for people who don't like how much alcohol they're drinking, but also don't know how to start when it comes to weed. Yeah, sure. And and then on the you know, form factors, a huge thing. I, I always think it's one of the great things about cannabis and the sector and the way it's evolving and growing and the innovation that's coming in. You know, alcohol got one delivery mechanism and one outcome really is you know you you get drunk cannabis you know it's edibles it's um patches it's vapes it's it's all kinds of different ways of consuming beverages of course did you feel that 
the drink sector was sort of ripe for disruption? Uh, and was it really the kind of microdose component? I, I had Dave Palanchuk on a few weeks ago, and he referenced you guys and was saying that the early cannabis beverages were kind of like those five-hour energy shots where they were packed full to the brim and you take a shot and you're kind of wasted already. And the beauty of can is that, you know, you can share it. It's a much lighter kind of um, effect. It's that, that microdose component. Tell me about that kind of form factor and the decision-making there really around disruption to the beverage market and the, and the microdose play. Dosing was the number one issue that we were trying to solve. Uh, if I was not interested in cannabis because I got too high and I didn't like how that felt, it's intuitive to think a lot of the people who aren't sure where to start are looking for something that's manageable. Mm. Beverage is a natural place for them to start because they're used to drinking alcohol, a, a social intoxicant, and they're used to sessioning alcohol. So have one beer, then another, then another, then another. If you have a hundred milligram shot, or if you have a hundred milligram lemonade that you're supposed to pour out into tiny little cups, that's not a social drinking experience that's familiar. So Jake's idea was let's do two milligrams of THC. And if you want to have five of them, then that's a 10 milligram experience over the course of an evening. And a 10 milligram high, you know, for someone like me, that's like getting pretty drunk. You're not able to function in as effective a way as you are when you're sober. And it's palpable, it's noticeable. But you don't want to get there right away. Like I don't go to the bar and just take five shots of vodka, boom, 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 boom. I, I you know, will have a shot, then I'll have another drink, and then I'll wait an hour. And the times where you have too much are where you run into trouble. So can is is the first beverage that by solving this problem has not made anybody higher than they want to be. And it's actually a really delicate balance because two milligrams for some people is actually the maximum they want. We have these resealable ends on the cans and some people say I have half a can and then I wait an hour and I have another half. Mm. So there, there's a one milligram consumer out there and we have to be mindful that boxing them out of the market or accidentally giving them a hundred milligram chocolate bar. When a bud tender does that, they, they ruin somebody's experience for life potentially. Yeah. So do, dosage was one piece, but there are four other frontiers that we were trying to kind of knock down one by one. Second is taste. All of the early cannabis beverages tasted kind of disgusting. If not tasting like cannabis, they tasted like chemicals or bitter agents mm. that were trying to solve for onset time. It really, if it's an onset time of five minutes versus 10 minutes versus 15, it doesn't matter. What people really care about in this category are drinks that do not taste bad. And so we, we worked with Source, uh, our emulsion partner, to create something that was tasteless and odorless. And when you drink a can versus our unspiked variant, which has no THC or CBD, you really can't tell the difference. Third frontier was branding. So just making it look like a normal drink that didn't make you feel like you were doing something illicit that you could put in with hard kombucha, with beer, with wine, with spiked seltzer in a cooler, and that it doesn't feel curiously different. And, and we solved that by working with Red Antler and and creating with um, uh, our designer Kanako these beautiful patterns of artwork that that are mosaics and odes to flavors and um, ingredients. And if you look at it, it, it looks like it could be on the shelf at Whole Foods, aside from the warning label. 
And then the final two are price, which I told you earlier, we're just trying to get the volumes up so that we can pass on some of the cost savings to the consumer and make can something that people are not batting an eyelash at when they, when they check out. This is a good value for your money. Mm. And it's not, you know, per milligram of THC, it's like relative to the alcohol that I would be buying. And the final frontier is availability. How do we get people to have this in places where it's not legal? Can't solve that. But in places where it is legal and you can't build fast enough or retailers don't have the infrastructure to take us on, it's very weird to buy beverages from behind a counter. It's great to buy them by grabbing them in a fridge and pulling them out of it. But very few dispensaries have fridges. Very few even let you freely grab products and hold them in your hand. So we've got a ways to go on the last two, but but dosing, branding, and flavor, we've really solved for. Yeah, that's great. And it, it touches on some of the questions I have coming up. So maybe we can dig a little deeper into some of those themes. You, you mef- referenced the the brand. You know, I think it's beautiful. My, my background is from running design studios. So it, it really spoke to me. Obviously, we're not lucky enough to have Cannes over here in the UK and Europe yet, but we, we hope that won't be too far away. Talk me through the the creation of the brand. Were you clear on the direction from the start? It's you know it's not just the look and feel, which I do think is as you say it feels premium. Um, it would happily sit as you say in the Whole Foods and some of those uh, other drinks like hard kombuchas and all the rest of it. Was were you clear on that direction from the start? You've also got some really lovely copy. I think the tonality of the way uh, the brand speaks to the audience is really uh, clever as well. So. Talk me through the process of creation there. Did you do that yourself? Did you use an agency or a studio? And did you have a clear target market in mind with the way the brand is positioned to the audience? The visuals and the voice are everything in the early days. Uh, Jake and I worked one-on-one for six months with the help of Kim Anderson, who um, just recently joined full-time as, a, as our brand and content guru. Jake, Kim, and I... Um, Kim is an advisor. Jake and I full-time. We were just cycling through different graphic designers and, and looking at concepts and saying, let's, let's dig in here. No, let's not do that. But it took six months and six different designers to finally land on where we landed. And each design exercise, whether it was with Tim Gervin or Kanako or Red Antler, we took something special from the design exercise and then held it into the next brief. So it was really a team effort between these six different designers and agencies um, on these short-term projects. And to Jake's credit, really just being uncompromising on releasing something before it was ready. Mm-hmm. We, we were ready to go months before we released the product from a visuals perspective in my book. But Jake kept saying, no, let's make it more gender neutral. No, let's make it more cross-generational, timeless. And I'm really grateful that we did take the extra time. From a voice standpoint, Eliza Robson, who was a a designer and a content strategist that we had for the first couple of years of the company's existence, Jake, Eliza, and I, we would have a meeting once a week where we would argue over every detail on an Instagram post, every word in an email or a caption. And if we all agreed that it was making us laugh and there was a layer that you could peel back and be excited about, then we shipped it. And it was a, a painful process for Eliza. I think ultimately she probably left because of how difficult the feedback cycles were. But 
it was a, it was an extraordinary process because we birthed this thing that had a unique tone of voice. And over time, we all learned to speak the can language, which wasn't how any of us spoke, mm. but has its own life. And my, my goal from the get-go was let's make this a friend, not a brand. Mm. Let's make this something that you don't scroll past on Instagram and roll your eyes, but something that you go, oh my God, like this is actually the way that I would want to engage with a friend of mine who had a sense of humor. Mm. And, and we cultivated never buying any followers, never artificially inflating any engagement, we cultivated an organic community of supporters who came to get to know Can and expected it to talk a certain way, expected it to look a certain way. Um, and there were times where we brought on people who were changing the voice and the engagement really did dip. And we ended up needing to take it back and, and dig in and make it sound the way that it used to sound. It's like when your friend goes through a phase and like, you know, they were like a cute a girly girl and then suddenly they're like an emo rocker and you're like where did this come from mm-hmm. like come back to me when you when you figured out who you are and different phases of can's adolescence it has lost its way or it's been really moody and it, it always finds its way back home and and mm-hmm. makes people laugh and brings people joy well I, I really think it speaks really clearly and uh it does hit those notes you say like it's it's kind of funny it's got a it's got a great tone to um, the way it communicates with the end user. So it's very cool. You mentioned the unspiked line. Um, it'd be great if you could just explain for m- my audience, our audience, like exactly what that is. Um, you know, I, th- I think from my side, it, it looks interesting the way, you know, it's um, not including any cannabinoids. It, was that intentional in terms of, is it more positioning the brand and the product in states where, or, or jurisdictions where, you know, there can't be, uh, THC added, or or is it literally just like this is a great mixer, you know, for whatever or an alternative to alcohol? It started off as a, like a hit on CBD beverages. I am so angry that there was this big CBD beverage moment that has clearly passed. Even all of the major CBD beverages are making products without CBD, and not just because it's hard from a regulatory perspective to keep up, but because the consumer just isn't into it anymore. Mm. Um, it was the promise of approachable cannabis with none of the effect. Mm. And so what we wanted to do uh, when we saw a bunch of our THC peers releasing CBD versions of their product to you know gain brand recognition and get distribution, we said, we don't believe in that. Like, but what we do believe in is the quality of the formulation. And so we said, let's just show it can stand alone without any cannabis, THC or CBD as a good drink. You know, we, we have elements that are reminiscent of the can branding. You'll see Unspiked continue to look more and more like can as we found it's not a risk to the retailer to be associated with can. It's actually a benefit because people, you know, have seen all the celebrity activity and, and all of the Instagram posting and they go, okay, like I've heard of this before and I feel comfortable taking it off the shelf at an Air One or a Foxtrot because Gwyneth Paltrow said it was good. So, you know, why not? And beverage marketers have to usually spend a lot of money to get sell-through uh, mm. and, and we have it built in. So we're partnering with Southern Wine and Spirits to distribute it as a non-alcoholic alternative. And, and, you know, maybe it sits next to athletic brewing. And if you want a, a beer, but you can't drink alcohol, you get that. And maybe mm. if you want a mocktail, then you get this. It's, it's just delicious. And 
I'll, I'll be honest, a lot of people do use it as a mixer, but we get in trouble with the sober community that I think finds comfort in a brand that speaks to Cali sober people and sober sober people. But they get frustrated when we partner with Kate Hudson's vodka company and and see that like we're advocating for alcohol consumption. Mm. In reality, we don't care. We are all for substance equality. We're here for the sobriety spectrum. And, you know, as someone who is pansexual and queer, I, I think the label definition is a part of the problem. And if you feel pressure to say, I do this, but I don't do that, mm. then you may have a difficult journey with sobriety and substances. But if you feel free to peacefully coexist with people who are drinking alcohol, who are using cannabis mm -hmm. or other drugs, or just having a soda, then that's, that's what inclusion looks like mm -hmm. when it comes to drinking culture. Yeah. I mean, I, I've felt that a lot as, you know, UK has a pretty, pretty comprehensive drinking culture. I mean, we're always in the pub. When you do go through stages of eliminating alcohol, you do often feel excluded or left out. And I do think that the, uh, you know, the improvement in uh, alcohol alternatives, non-alcohol drinks or low alcohol drinks has really helped people, um, you know, feel like they, they're not, if they're not drinking, they don't have to go home, you know? So that's been a big shift. Tell me a little bit about the customer base. You know, I think of CAN as a, as a diverse organization in the way you communicate and the way you put yourself across, you know, I know you post uh, sort of the the stuff about your executive team and the kind of splits between genders and all the rest of it customer wise you know is it has there anything that's been surprising about the way they've engaged with the products uh any unexpected insights you've learned over the time that you've been you've been running can i gotta give a shout out to mary Pryor, who if you haven't yeah. had on the show um she's extraordinary yeah i'm, she... I'm trying to get her on for sure I can help you with that. She and I are right. working on some really cool storytelling projects with uh, Rosario Dawson, our board member. Yeah. Um, Mary runs Canaclusive, which is an organization that sometimes I like to think it's like the diet Prada of cannabis, but in uh, I think its purest form, it is an advocacy organization that fosters a safe space for black and brown cannabis entrepreneurship and consumption. And I met Mary and her team early on and was educated about how problematic it was that I'm in the industry at all. That, that like, you know, a drink like can, which is positioned as a, an alcohol substitute for someone who's like a little nervous about weed, it, it's gentrification. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a right way to go about it. There's a wrong way to go about accessing new uh, cannabis users. And the, the wrong way to go about it is to just kind of do whatever you want and forget about the communities that have been harmed by the war on drugs and who have basically built the industry that we have a privilege to participate in and an outsized privilege in that uh, white cannabis operators have tremendously easy access to capital relative to black and brown cannabis entrepreneurs. And so Mary early on educated me about how to hold myself accountable throughout the stages of the company's development. And I didn't really understand how it would impact our consumer loyalty, but it, it has by having an executive team that's half women, that's a third queer, a third people of color, by having 
legacy operators advise us on our marketing and campaign work, we've made some choices in who we partner with and what stories we tell that have made it so that CAN is not just cross-generational and gender neutral, but it is also adored by Black, Latinx, AAPI, and non-BIPOC communities uh, alike. Mm. And we're still at the beginning phases of understanding our position in writing a very problematic industry. You know, 95% of businesses are operated by white people, overwhelmingly white men. The uh, investors and board members are even more white. And the efforts that municipalities, and literally there are just dozens, not even hundreds of municipalities that have equity reform actually happening in these you know, couple dozen municipalities, the equity reform is service level. It's okay, let's, let's say that you know, as long as you have one applicant and this entire thing can be run by white people at the top, but like do one PR thing and then you're totally in the clear from a, you're an equity operator perspective. And, and so I think they can, by being diverse at every level, that's, you know, having diverse investors, having diverse celebrity investors, having a diverse board, having a diverse leadership team, having a diverse workforce. We want to just be an example of prioritizing diversity at the expense of near-term financial outcomes. Mm. And, you know, we donated 1% of our revenue over the last two years to black and brown cannabis entrepreneurship causes. A company that's not profitable probably shouldn't be donating, you know, one percent of its sales. But we know that that's exactly what we have to do, and we think that that's what everyone should be doing, regardless of how profitable they are. Is is make the effort to not just post interesting and diverse pieces of content that are mindful of different populations, but tell real stories about people who have been harmed by the war on drugs in a way that's accessible, donate money. Writing a check is not the end game, but it's the bare minimum. Mm. And then hiring and looking within and ensuring that you have diversity at every level. Those are just three things that people can do in this industry to not, not encourage the behavior that is, is so common that mm. excludes people of color, especially women of color from decision-making forums. And very rarely do organizations have sustained commitment to doing those three things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's amazing to hear you speak in that way. And the fact that you're taking such a strong uh, level of responsibility to help shape the industry in the right way and not import many of the legacy privilege systems and bias from other industries. Or it's often the easy way is hire people you've worked with before or kind of make decisions which are at the pursuit of financial gain in the short term. But the harder decision or the more difficult path is is the right one to take. And it's not easy as a business leader to do that. So I think it's really commendable, Luke, that that's the direction you're taking. And I really do think that that plays out in the brand as well. So kudos to you guys for that. And um, I think that's amazing. What about you touched on this a little bit earlier, like brand extension, you know, obviously there's a pretty good range of flavors now. Are you looking at different products? Will we see a microdose psychedelic can beverage in the not too distant? Is that on the roadmap? We're a beverage company. I, I think you'll see low ABV options from can. I think you'll see psychedelic options in the, in the distant future. 
we we will make a beverage that tastes good and is safe to consume socially and helps people have fun and not do too much harm to their bodies and minds. And we have no limits to where that begins or ends. Nice. I saw on the site, um, obviously I, I'm not eligible to use it because I'm not in a, in a jurisdiction where I can, but you have a concierge on the site. Do people use it? How does it work? Is this just people like asking in questions or for advice on products? And how does that, how does that work? It's like a, you know, an extension of this whole friend, not a brand idea. Yeah. We, we have a number that you can text and we have actual people answering whatever it is that comes their way. And, and we keep the conversation fun and light. And sometimes it's, I can't figure out my delivery. And sometimes it's like, well, how fucked up is this going to get me? And, <laughs> and we're here for whatever conversation. We'll stop short of giving advice. Um, and we're not a therapist, but we we will uh, will be a friend and yeah. a commiserator. Nice, I like it. Just I I saw you. I think you gave a talk the other week in Miami. Might have even been last week uh, about fundraising, and you know I know you've gone through some rounds recently. But I thought what what was actually quite interesting is you know a lot of people ask me to ask guests about raising money. A lot of people out there are trying to capitalize their businesses, specifically in Europe. But what I thought was interesting that you, I think you had a take on like, what do you do once you've raised the money and spending the money? Because no one ever really asks that kind of question. So it's always like, how do I raise money? How do I talk to investors? How do I pitch my business? Do you have some tips or advice you might be willing to share with the listeners on kind of raising, but then also once you've raised, how to manage those funds sensibly? It's the hardest part, you, you know, both raising the money and figuring out how to use it. If you are able to close a venture check. The good news is if you have a sophisticated investor, they will help you decide how to use it. They'll approve plans. They'll check in with you monthly, quarterly to ensure that you are performing to plan. And my only real advice is don't make promises you can't keep because you can make a mistake and you can reforecast, but your investor is willing to bet on you based on your ability to hit targets and be within a certain percentage of what you say you're going to do as often as possible. So we pride ourselves in you know, our, our $5 million seed round. I looked at Logan Langberg from Imaginary and said, you, you know, you, you're having second thoughts? Fine. I'll promise you I'll have $3 million in revenue. And then, you know, will you write the check? And he said, if you can find a way to hit $3 million in revenue, then, then I'll write the check. And so I spent every day of that entire calendar year just figuring out how to do it. And I didn't have any real, I mean, I mean, I had a strategy, but I didn't have an airtight bulletproof plan. It was like best efforts. If this isn't working, pivot. If this isn't working, pivot. And I think Logan was an amazing partner during 2020 by being really transparent with investors and sharing bad news, you get a really, really good outcome faster. The trust and the, the confidence in you as an entrepreneur often hinges on your ability to be transparent when things are not going well. Mm. Um, managing expectations and, and knowing that reality minus expectations equals happiness and happy investors mean more investors and bigger checks. For sure. Um, you touched on... Uh, celebrities earlier and you know if you go on the site you see 
you've got Rebel Wilson kind of, you know, give it name checking you. And you mentioned Rosario Dawson's on your board. Cannabis is littered with celebrities launching brands, endorsing stuff, getting involved in all kinds of different products. Is this an important part of the can strategy? And I think what I what I think is good from what I've seen looking from the outside is that you do uh, have them adding value. So how did you go about that process? And, and um, you know, if you could share a little bit more insight there. Well, it's totally, um, uh, this is the weirdest part of the whole journey because here we are with 35 celebrities, none of whom are stoners by your, your traditional Seth Rogen, Martha Stewart, Snoop Dogg, Chelsea Handler, Sarah Silverman, people who have really been bold in their cannabis use early, you associate their personal brand with cannabis. You know, Chelsea Handler, who is an icon, I think, you know, her tour poster will have weed uh, nuggets like on it. And, and she will make a, a lot of the storytelling and purposeful storytelling, like, you know, helping to advance diversity and inclusion in, in the space, but will make cannabis central to her personal brand. We set out to try to earn the endorsement of like three or four celebrities who would never be publicly associated with cannabis to just turn the tide and help people get used to it. And once we had Gwyneth and Rebel and Ruby, the floodgates were open. It was like, well, I've got a friend and she likes the drinks or, you know, they like the drink. And uh, as long as somebody has an organic affinity for the product and a personal connection to us as founders, we say yes, join the family. You, you have a bigger audience than we ever could hope to, and you can help us. And, and so um, we ended up with this really big and diverse army of people who are either famous for their YouTube creation, their music, their acting, their politics. And, and, and we're just so grateful that no matter what we're trying to do, there's someone who is brilliantly creative and well-known for their creativity who can help us do it. And I think the strength of our marketing and campaign work, I don't think I answered the question you asked at the very beginning, which is like, what is the proudest moment of this journey? Well, we won seven Clio Awards last year, which for a, a tiny brand, and we did that, that all seven were won on a total of a $300,000 budget. And, and so I'm working with really brilliant creative people in our yeah. ecosystem and putting out stories that people you know, want to see and engage with and that change how they feel about cannabis. That has been a tremendous asset. We couldn't have planned for it, but we're really, really happy with how it's going. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Who, um, obviously you mentioned Mary and we've had a couple of other people we've talked about in this, in this conversation. Who else uh, do you really respect uh, in the industry? You know, brands, people, institutions, um, who's, who's doing it for you? Day Lim uh, at Sunday School such a smart guy has created this like half streetwear, half cannabis mm. brand that I, I actually had a question on your merch. I was like, did you, did you riff off uh, Sunday school? Cause they are pretty cool. Yeah. We, we made a sweatshirt early on that became pretty popular, but Sunday school, uh, they do drops of incredibly iconic pieces of just fashion mm. every week. It seems yeah, like we partnered with Sunday School on a beverage and a piece of merch. Um, it, we did a Yuzu Elderflower can, which is our, our top-selling drink in September of last year, and um, one of the most delicious. Uh, you know, it's a nod to 
AAPI ingredient heritage and, and we turned the day on all of the marketing and creative and, and, um, and he made a sweatshirt that celebrated the occasion. So it was really fun. And I think day has been a champion for diversity and inclusion in cannabis in a way that is just, it, he makes it sexy and, mm. and I think approachable. Pete Davidson and Bowen Yang wear his stuff. Like it's, it's very cool. Mm, yeah, I agree. And uh, we touched on a few frustrations with, like you say, some of the CBD drink stuff. Anything that you, it sort of frustrates you in the industry at the moment or areas for improvement, things you'd like to see in the coming year? Dispensaries, man, like bud tenders. I know that you like to get wicked stoned all the time, but if somebody comes in and says, I'm new, give them a can. Don't give them a hundred milligram chocolate bar. Don't give them like a, a pre-roll. They probably just want to have a safe and very low dose experience that they understand. And I think dispensaries and bud tenders, if they can get on board with beverages being something that they would recommend, you'll see the industry transform. You'll see more crowded dispensaries. You'll see them with people who are saying, I stopped going to the liquor store and this is where I go instead. And that makes me happier. That causes fewer problems in my life. Mm -hmm. Like those are, those are the outcomes that I think the industry has the potential to achieve but it, it takes dispensaries and bud tenders to really listen to the consumer that's new and meet them where they're at. Yeah. And like you said earlier, it's um, you can definitely lose a customer from one sale, but if you start them off with something uh, a little lighter, you're probably going to get them on to buy other things, you know, in that way, but you can absolutely ruin yeah. someone's journey with cannabis in one, in one go. Right. And you win their recommendation. Mm. The the mom who goes to the dispensary and gets a can and gets a six pack again, splits it with three other people. She recommends it to people who have typically not liked cannabis. And her recommendation is much more powerful than mm. anything. Sure. Um, because new new acquisition, that's the thing everyone's really fighting for in, in cannabis is like, how do you get people to show up to the store? Yeah. And you got to ride on their recommendation. If yeah. they promote your your store and your bud tenders are, are giving them products that don't scare them, then you're going to see a lot of return purchase and um, referral benefit. Yeah, for sure. So, Luca, I've arrived at my my final question. I'm giving you uh, my crystal ball, and I'm going to ask you what are going to be the most exciting developments still to come in cannabis. You know, are we going to see can in the UK soon, um, or anything else? I, I can was really excited to be, I think we were the first microdose beverage to go international. And, and so we're in the U S and Canada right now, but now that we have jumped from one national border to the next, uh, I think we, we really see the entire world as an opportunity. So two things I'm excited about one, just like, you know, gay marriage, uh, became, I think this thing that like, as soon as we reached critical mass of people saying like, yeah, this is cool. This is fine. The dominoes just fell so quickly. Mm. And so many countries took that thing that was previously not palatable for society and just made it mainstream accepted. Cannabis is so similar in that like the people are already saying, yes, we're ready for it no matter where they live. And it's only a matter of time before you see just like sweeping regulatory reform that allows us to make can in the US and ship it to another country. Mm. Right now we have to make can in California to sell in California. We have to make it in Nevada to sell it in Nevada. And we have to make it in Canada to sell it in Canada. 
but I, I think importing cannabis beverages from all around the world, it will create and foster uh, and harness energy around a new drinking culture. And that's, I think, what we really need is, is a, a future of drinking. Well, I definitely agree with that. And uh, as I say, we've been uh, we're huge fans over here. It's been great getting, yeah, like I say, so many of my guests are like, you know, got to talk to Luke, you know, Canada doing all this amazing stuff for all of the reasons we've discussed. And uh, I just want to say thank you once again, Luke, uh, for joining me on the show today. I know you're a very busy man, so um, I really appreciate that. And uh, I hope to speak to you again in the future soon. And I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. And um, check out drinkcan.com with two ends. You'll find some someone lives near a place where they can get you some. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, thanks very much, man. Amazing, amazing, amazing stuff. Uh, I just love what Luke and his team are doing. You know, the brand is beautiful. The product makes sense. It is uh, definitely taking the sort of social situation, form factor, and putting those things together with cannabis. And it's really inspirational to hear founders making difficult decisions that are for the long-term benefit. They align with their belief systems and their values, but they don't necessarily always make the most sense in the short term from an investor perspective. And I really respect that. I think it takes guts. And if he ever does get around to making that microdose psychedelic beverage, uh, put me down for a few of those for sure. Well, we're nearing the end of this current season of The Glow Show. So I'm going to keep the last couple of guests close to my chest for now while we just firm it all up. But in the meantime, as always, stay safe, stay well, and I will see you in the future. The Glow Show. We believe in the power of cannabis.